I'd like you to take a Bible this morning. Let's open it together to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 11. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we would like you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. And uh, we're going to be on page 221, page 221 to begin in our copy of the Bible, or Second Samuel chapter 11 in your copy of the Bible. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the Doral Open Golf Tournament played host to a heartbreaking finish. Young golfer Greg Kraft was seeking his very first victory on the PGA Tour after eight years of frustration. And two nights in a row, he went to bed with a two-shot lead. And on the, the last 18 holes, seemed to be doing just fine. Even when fellow golfer Steve Elkington came roaring back, birdieing six holes in a row, Kraft hung right with him. And as Kraft came to the 18th and final hole, all he had to do was par the hole to a sure playoff, birdie the hole, he wins the tournament, and he wins more money than he won in all of 1998 in one tournament. So after a wonderful drive, he has 190 yards to go to the, to the uh, pin. He pulled a five iron out of his bag and proceeded to hit it right into the water in front of the hole. 20 yards shy of the green, bogeyed the hole, lost the tournament, and completed one of the worst crash and burns since Greg Norman blew the Masters a few years ago. He said in an interview afterwards, this is going to leave a bitter taste in my mouth that I'm going to have for a long, long time. End of quote. Now, as I was watching this, I thought, you know, what happens to great craft in golf often happens to people in life. Namely, we're cruising along, everything seems to be fine, we seem to have everything under control, and then suddenly, wham, disaster hits. And the reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what's going to happen to David in our passage for today. We're going to begin today talking about David and Bathsheba. Uh, no sin in history, perhaps, has had uh, more press than this one. But there's a lot more going on here than just a royal scandal. There are some huge lessons for us as Christians in the 20th century that are found in the events of these next two chapters, 11 and 12 in 2 Samuel. So we're going to hover here just a little while and try to draw those lessons out. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, a little bit of background before we dig in. David now, King David, is almost 50 years old. He's not some young kid anymore. He's been the king of Israel for almost 20 years, and he has become the most powerful ruler in the ancient Near East at his, at his time. And so this is the man who is about to have happen to him what we're going to read about. So let's look. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they defeated the Ammonites, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, the weather in Israel is very predictable. From mid-November to mid-March, it rains. And from mid-March on, it doesn't. And so that's why kings went out to war in the spring. Because before the spring, it's too wet. There's too muddy. Your, your chariots get bogged down. Your troops can't move around. So there was kind of like a ceasefire that everybody would declare in the wintertime. And in the spring, they'd go back at it again. And so now it's spring. David sends his army out. Uh, but the Bible says David, interestingly enough, remained in Jerusalem. He didn't go out with the army. And that's where all the trouble starts. Verse 2. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
We know from archaeology that in David's day, kings built their palaces with what we would call today a rooftop patio. It was a place where they could go to enjoy the cool evening breezes. It was a place they could go to escape the demands of public service. It was a place they would go and sit with friends and family and relax. And that's where David found himself this unforgettable evening. Middle of verse 2. And from, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. As David was looking around, suddenly he spots this woman taking a bath on a neighboring roof. And the Bible says she was very beautiful. And now the Bible doesn't exaggerate. And the Bible very seldom uses the adjective very. And so what we really have here is the Bible telling us that this woman was drop dead gorgeous up on the roof there. Verse 3. And David sent to find out who this woman was. Now, if there's a fulcrum in this chapter, if there's an, a, a crisis point, an apex, a turning point, it's right here in verse 3. Instead of turning away, instead of leaving the roof, instead of going back inside, instead, the Bible says, David sent to find out who this woman was. That's the fulcrum on which this chapter revolves. Beginning uh, in the middle of verse 3 now. And the servant uh, that went to find out came back and said, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, in ancient Israel, when you would ask who someone was, they would tell you their name, their father's name, their grandfather's name, their great-grandfather's name. That's the way you describe people. Here this servant comes back and says, well, her name is this, and this is her father. And then he departs from that formula and says, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, why did the servant say it like that? Well, the reason is he understood what David was thinking. He's a man. He knew exactly what David was planning. And in a very respectful and polite way, he was trying to say to David, hey, your majesty, she's off limits. She's a married woman. You don't want to do this, your majesty. This is a bad mistake. Now, friends, David knew what was right. David knew the Bible. David knew the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. David knew the story of Samson, how he got himself involved in sexual sin and completely self-destructed. David knew better than do this. But look what he did, verse 4. And so it says that David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. And then she went back home. It looked like at the beginning just any normal one night stand until, verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. And they say, well, now, wait a minute, time out a second. Where is Uriah, her husband, during all of this? I mean, where is the man? Well, I'll tell you where he was. We're going to find out a little later. He was a soldier, and he was off with the army fighting with, uh, with, your, with Joab, the commanding general, which is exactly where David should have been. This was a godly man, a man of duty, a man of honor, off doing what he was supposed to be doing. David stayed home and ended up taking advantage of his wife. That's where the man was. Now, that's as far as I want us to go today in that chapter. But just let me say before we ask the most important question, that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I don't know about you, but when I was considering this, one of the issues that was paramount in my mind was whether or not I could really trust the Bible. Whether the Bible was really from God, whether it was really telling me the truth. And friends, there are many proofs that the Bible is what it claims to be, but one of them is this very issue right here that the Bible does not sanitize 
the mistakes of its heroes. If you go back and you read the records of the ancient Near East, whether they're Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian, whatever, you will find that in every one of them, the heroes are sanitized. Their, their, their victories are recorded, but never any failures. And yet, when you read the Bible, you will find that its greatest heroes, Abraham, Moses, David, when they made a mistake, it's recorded with as much honesty as when they had a victory. Because this is not the product of some human being trying to sanitize heroes. This is the, God, the book that was written by the God of truth, and he's telling us the truth. And sometimes the truth is pretty, and sometimes the truth is ugly, but you get the truth either way. And that's one of the greatest proofs there is that the Bible is what it claims to be. Something I hope you'll think about. Well, that brings us to the most important question as Christians, and you know what that question is. What is it? One, two, three. Exactly. Wonderful. You say, Lon, you know, I feel sorry for David. I feel bad for the man. But this doesn't have a thing to do with me. I mean, I don't even know any women who take baths on the roof. So what difference does this have to do with me? Well... I think there are some great lessons here for us, friends. Listen, let's remember who this is that made this mistake. This is David. This is the man who beat Goliath. This is the man who has been king of Israel for 20 years, who's expanded Israel's border to the largest they'll ever be. This is the man who is stockpiling and drawing up the plans for the temple. This is the man who wrote the 23rd Psalm, for goodness sake. This is not some wild sexual pervert that did this. This is a man of God but he gets shot right out the saddle. And the reason it happened is because David made some mistakes, some very critical mistakes. That's how he got himself in trouble. And I want us to look at those mistakes. There are three of them I want to share with you because, friends, by taking stock of those mistakes, maybe we won't repeat them. And if we don't repeat them, we won't get shot out the saddle like he did. So let's look at them together. Mistake number one was this, that David failed to stop the enemy, the threat, the, the, the temptation at the perimeter. You know, any military officer will tell you that when you set up camp, the first thing you do is establish a perimeter away from the camp, separated from the innards of the camp, and you defend the perimeter. And your goal is to stop the enemy at the perimeter and not let the enemy inside the inward workings of the camp. Now, uh, an enemy may penetrate a, a perimeter and you may still be able to repulse that enemy, but the body count's going to be a whole lot higher when that happens. The goal of any military unit is to repulse the enemy at the perimeter. And friends, as Christians in our fight to live God-honoring lives, this same principle holds true. That the place to stop temptation is at a perimeter, is out at a distance from us. The, the, the way to do this is to set up some boundaries that keep the temptation away from the innards of our life so that the body count is a lot smaller. See, David failed to do this. Do you really think that it was a total shock to David that he saw Bathsheba that night up on the roof? Do you really think he had never been up there before and ever seen her or other women bathing in other rooftops? Do you think this came as a complete surprise to him and that he had no idea what he might see up on that rooftop that night? I don't. I think David knew perfectly well when he went up there what he might see. And if that's true, then godly wisdom certainly would have dictated that he have a boundary that said, I don't go up on my rooftop alone at night. I don't do it. That's my perimeter, and I beat the enemy at the perimeter. I don't even go up there. 
This is why Proverbs 14, 16 says, A wise person fears the Lord and stays far away from evil. In other words, that we as Christians ought to be establishing boundaries that keep us back from the edge, away from evil, so we don't get right up to the edge where we can slip and fall off like David did. And I find that many of us as modern Christians repeat the very mistake that David made. We don't take the time to establish boundaries that are biblical and God-honoring. We don't even have a spiritual perimeter where we can make our stand. We let temptation get right into the innards of the camp. And even if we do succeed in beating it, man, the body count's too high. You say, well, Lon, I don't even understand what you're talking about with these boundaries and this perimeter. What are you talking about? Give me some practical uh, handles on this. Okay, I will. Let me tell you about some of the boundaries I've set up for my life, where I've tried to place the perimeter for my life over the years. I'll just give you a few of them. The first thing I do when I walk into a hotel room when I'm traveling is pick up the remote and disable the adult channels in my room. And the reason I do that is because that's a perimeter. That's a boundary I have for my life. I'd much rather fight that battle at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when I walk in the room than I would at midnight when I'm laying in bed all by myself and alone. I don't have any HBO, Cinemax, Showtime or anything like that that comes into my home on cable. We just don't have it. Because I'd rather fight the battle right there with not ordering it than I would have it in the house and maybe watch something that I shouldn't watch in a weak moment. So I don't even have it come in. Uh, When it comes to pay-per-view, top events, I called up Media General Cable and I said, give me a four-digit pin and don't tell me what it is. I don't want to know what it is. Put a four-digit pin on on my account so that nobody can order those movies, not even me. I don't even want to know what the pin is and I don't know what it is because I don't want to be even take the risk that in a weak moment I could call up and order something I shouldn't order. I do no long-term counseling of ladies. I'll see a lady one time. And I won't see her again unless she brings her husband or her boyfriend. We have a counseling center with women who are licensed professional counselors. If a woman needs long-term counseling, we have a wonderful counseling center that provides it. But I don't. Because I know how many ministers got in trouble starting with counseling. So that's a boundary I've set up for my life. I just don't do it. Friends, I, I, I don't do the Internet late at night. I don't go to chat rooms. I don't email ladies that I don't have, that I've never met before. I don't open email that looks suspicious. I don't even open it and go there because I'd rather make the boundary there than once I've gone on online pornography and I'm trying to deal with it at that point. I never ride alone in a car with a woman that's not my wife. I never eat a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner anywhere with a woman that's not my wife unless there's a third party along, male or female, doesn't matter. I just don't do it. And I don't, uh, I don't have any ability to write checks here at McLean Bible Church. I don't have any access to the funds of McLean Bible Church at all. If you went out and you bought $3.75 worth of coffee and you wanted me to reimburse you from petty cash, I cannot do it. I don't have any authority. I don't even know where petty cash is. In fact, somebody, this is true, somebody came up to me a couple months ago and said, Hey, Lon, I need to put something in the safe here. Can you show me where the safe is? Friends, honest to God truth, I didn't even know we had a safe. Honest to God. I said, do we have a safe? And they go, of course we do. I don't even know. They had to show me where the safe was. Why? Because I have put that as a boundary to my life. If I have no access to money, then I can't possibly do anything wrong with it. And what I'm trying to say to you, friends, is a wise person sets up a perimeter that keeps temptation away from them 
and that fights temptation far away from the innards of their life. And my question to you is, have you done things like this in your life? Have you taken the time to set up in your sexual life, in your business ethics, in your personal habits, biblically-based boundaries? Do you have a perimeter where you can make your stand? David didn't. And that's how he got himself in trouble. Mistake number two David made. You say, well, Lon, even if you have good boundaries, sometimes you can find yourself in a situation you don't expect it, you couldn't anticipate it, boom, there you are, and there's the temptation. You're right. So that leads me to the second mistake David made, which is that David, second of all, failed to fight temptation biblically. He failed to fight temptation using God's strategy. When David found himself on that route, seeing Bathsheba, feeling passion, okay, maybe he didn't know she'd be up there. Maybe he didn't expect to see her. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. When he found himself there, God had an action plan, a formula for him to follow whereby he could have protected himself. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And there it says, flee sexual immorality. In other words, God's plan was, David, turn around, get out of there, split the scene. Go out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan, get on the bus, Gus, don't be coy, Roy, just get yourself out of there. That's what Paul Simon said. And there are 50 ways to get out of temptation, turning and running all the way. Pick one of them and do it, God says. Now, instead, David did what we as Christians so often do. And that is David overestimated his power to resist. David said, you know what? I can play with this a little bit. I can dabble in this a little bit. I can fantasize with this a little bit. I can kind of dance around this a little bit. And then when it gets too hot and too heavy, I can walk away. I can send and find out her name. I can invite her over here. No, he couldn't. You see what happened? Folks, David figured he could play with fire and not get burned, but the the, the power of our human passions are just too great for that. That's why God says when you find yourself in temptation, don't you dabble with that thing. Don't you flirt with that thing. You get out of there. Did you read about the terrible train wreck this week out in Illinois, killing 13 people, maybe more? Apparently it happened when some guy driving a tractor trailer tried to play beat the train. And in in commenting on this in USA Today, very interesting comment. Listen, and I quote, it said, part of the problem is that people overestimate the power of a train to stop. It can take a 10,000 ton train traveling at 50 miles an hour, a full mile to stop. Once the emergency brake has been engaged, a mile. And, and I was reading that and I thought, you know, temptation in a Christian's life is just like a 10,000 ton train. We overestimate as Christians our power to stop it, to put the brakes on it once it's built up ahead of steam. God says the secret is don't you ever let it build up ahead of steam. You flee it. You get away from it before that happens. Listen, if you're married and you're attracted to somebody in your office or at work, don't you ask them to go out and have a drink. Don't you invite them to go to lunch with you. Don't think you can play with that and get away with it. You get out of that situation and stay out of it. That's what God says. If you're tempted to dabble in pornography, then you shouldn't have HBO. You shouldn't have Cinemax. You call and get a pay-per-view code on your TV. Uh, If you're tempted to drink too much, don't drink at all. Don't even go in the bar after work. I mean, it's hard to order a beer on the metro on your way home to be with your family. Get on the metro and go home. Don't even walk in the bar. If you've got a problem putting your hand in the cookie jar, then you set up some ways to protect yourself where you don't have access to the funds at work where you could even do something wrong. If you have trouble with gossip, 
then, then if you find yourself in a conversation that starts turning that way, get up right away and say, look, before I say something I regret, I need to leave right now. I'm out of here. If you have trouble overspending, then you leave the American Express card home when you go out. You take cash. You, you, you know, have a little party and burn the plastic at your house or do something. But don't even put yourself in the position where you could maybe mess up. Flee that situation. Friends, David didn't do this. He did not use God's method to deal with temptation. He played with it. He dabbled with it. He fantasized with it. And he got himself in trouble. Don't do that. Principle number three, and finally, mistake number three that David made. David failed to stay disciplined. Now, this is one of the most common human tendencies that I find is the tendency to get lazy and sloppy and overindulgent as we get older and more successful. To the, the tendency to forsake the very hard discipline that helped us become the success that we've become. Hey, and, and this has happened much in our world. We've seen it. It happened to Elvis. It happened to John Belushi. It happened to Jimmy Swaggart. It happened to Orson Welles and Marlon Brando. I mean, by the time uh, their lives were over, they were the size of small cottages, if you look at them. Uh, you know, it happened to the Roman army. The Roman army, that disciplined fighting machine, got soft and the Roman Empire crumbled. It happened to Dexter Manley, used to play for the Redskins. And friends, it happened to David. As David's, David's success went up, David's self-discipline went down. You say, now how do you know that? How can you be so sure of that? Well, because of what it says here in verse 1, that David remained in Jerusalem when the army went out. Man, friends, David had a duty. He had a duty to be with his men out there in the field, living in a tent, suffering the hardships of war with those men, leading them as their leader. He didn't have a responsibility to lay around in Jerusalem eating chocolates, getting soft, which is where he was. And I'll bet you, if you could really look at his life at this moment in time, you'd find some other things were true of David. I'll bet you you would find that David's spiritual disciplines had slipped. I'll bet you would find he was not spending as much time in the Word of God as he used to. He wasn't praying as much as he used to. He wasn't meditating on God as much as he used to. I'll bet you you'll find his physical disciplines had slipped. I'll bet you you would find that David was, was fat. I'll bet you you'll find he was pudgy. I'll bet you find he was getting out of shape. I'll bet you you would find that he was eating a little bit too much and drinking a little bit too much and staying up a little too late and sleeping in a little too much in the morning and looking at ladies a little too long. The truth is, David was getting soft. And it was that lack of discipline that opened his flank up to get shot right out the saddle like he did. If he'd have been out with the army, suffering hardship with his men like he should have been, this never would have happened. I want you to turn to one passage before we finish. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's page 811. In our copy of the Bible, page 811 in our copy, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is one of my least favorite passages in the whole Bible. And the reason for that is I don't like the pressure that this passage puts on my life. But nonetheless, it's good. Look what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 811. Look at verse 24. Paul is talking about people who compete in the Olympic Games. And look what he says. He says, do you not know that in a, in a race, all the runners run... But only one gets the prize. There's only one gold medal given out. So run, Paul says, in such a way to get the prize. Don't just be happy you're in the race. Run to win. Now, how do you do that? Well, he says, verse 25, every athlete who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, a piece of gold, a piece of plastic. 
But we do it as Christians to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I know what I'm doing. I do not fight like a man just beating the air. No, Paul says, I beat my body. That's what I'm trying to beat. And I try to make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I might not end up being disqualified for the prize myself. What Paul is saying is that after I've preached to others, I don't want my body to tell me what to do to the point that my body ends up causing me to be disqualified for winning the prize when I get to heaven. And Paul is calling you and me as Christians here to a disciplined life where we tell our body what to do. We don't let our body tell us what to do. Now, I know that self-discipline is probably the least favorite word in the English language. But listen to me carefully. It is an inescapable fact that it is impossible for our spiritual lives to erode unless our self-discipline has eroded first. Let me repeat that. It is impossible for your spiritual life to erode unless your self-discipline has eroded first. I was reading the book uh, about Nolan Ryan's life, the great pitcher this week, called Miracle Man. Do you know what? He, th- this book was written when he was 44 and still pitching. This man had seven no-hitters, two of which were pitched after he was 40 years old. He had over 5,500 strikeouts, won the Cy Young Award, is a member of the Hall of Fame now. But here's what he said at age 44, and I quote, He said, folks are surprised to learn that with my daily workouts, I spend seven or eight hours a day at the ballpark. You say, well, my goodness, what does he do? Well, after a game, the book says, he gets on the life cycle and rides 45 minutes before he goes home. Can you imagine pitching eight or nine innings of professional baseball and then you get on the life cycle for 45 minutes before you go home? The next morning after he pitches, he comes in and he lifts 50 to 55,000 pounds of weights the next morning. He breaks for lunch, comes in the next afternoon, does ab work, leg work, sprints, and swims for 20 minutes or more. He does the same workout the second day after he pitches, the same workout the third day after he pitches, and the fourth day when he's scheduled to pitch, he comes in and for his pregame workout, lifts 10,000 pounds in the weight room before he goes out to pitch. He said, I enjoy feeling good and strong and hard. There's no doubt in my mind that if it had not been for the weight room and my commitment to it, I would have been out of the game many years ago, end of quote. And when I read this book, I turned and I said to myself, now Solomon, what about you? What about you? Do you have the kind of discipline like Nolan Ryan? Are you getting soft like David did? And friends, I, I would like to ask you the same question. What about you? What about your spiritual disciplines? You know, many times when we're young Christians, I mean, we spend time reading the Bible and time praying and time studying and time memorizing. And we, you know, but then as the years go on, we lose that discipline. Where's your discipline? Do you have the same discipline you used to have or you gotten soft spiritually? And physically, how about your weight? How about your diet? How about staying in shape? How about working out? How about uh, oversleeping? How about getting up and being productive every day? You know, is there physical discipline in your life? You say, well, that doesn't really matter, Lon. No, 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 that's not true, friends, because it's all interconnected. A disciplined life is a disciplined life. Just that simple. You can't pick pieces of it and say, well, I'll be disciplined here, but I won't over there. It doesn't work that way. It's one of the things I love about what the Naval Academy has taught my son. The Naval Academy has taught him that having a disciplined life in every area of life is the secret to success long term. 
That's why I love that place and what it's done for my son. Because that's true. And the reason David got himself in trouble was that he lost his disciplines. He got soft. He got indulgent. He got lazy. You say, now, Lon, wait a minute. Are you saying something wrong with vacations? Are you saying there's something wrong with having fun? Are you saying there's something wrong with, with just, you know, taking some breaks and having some leisure pursuits? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is these are wonderful things as long as they are authentic breaks in a life that regularly consists of self-discipline, hard work, and spiritual self-control. If they're a break, wonderful. But friends, when leisure and indulgence and complacency become the way we're living and we start getting soft, we leave our flank exposed. And I'm telling you, we're dealing with an enemy that's been doing this for 10,000 years or more. And when we drop our guard and leave our flank exposed, he does not miss. He does not miss. How can we keep from happening to us what happened to David? I've got three suggestions for you. Number one, establish some boundaries. Have a perimeter where you fight temptation away from the innards of your life and make your stand there. Set up some God-honoring boundaries in your life and protect your heart. Protect your heart. Number two, if you find yourself in a temptation-filled situation in spite of those boundaries, take God's advice. Admit you're weak. You say, Lon, for me to turn and flee admits I'm weak. You are weak. Admit it. And get out of there. Get out of there. And number three, maintain godly discipline with fervor. Don't get soft. Stay disciplined. Stay hard spiritually. Stay hard physically. And friends, by doing these things, you won't expose your flank like David did. Let me just repeat what I said. We're dealing with an enemy who does not miss when you expose a flank. So don't do it. Ask for the Spirit of God's help. And if you need to make some course corrections... Let me challenge you. Let's make them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thanks for talking to us about some real down-to-earth practical things today. And uh, really, honestly, none of us like hearing these things. Um, We'd all like to live easy, indulgent lives. I would. But Lord, David went that direction and we see what happened to him. And so remind us that if we want to finish our life the way Paul did, If we want to be able to say at the end of our life, we've run the race, we finished the course, we fought the fight, and we didn't disgrace ourselves, and we didn't disgrace the Lord. If we want to finish like that, then it means that we've got to be smarter than David was. We've got to be disciplined. We've got to have boundaries. We can't dabble with sin. We've got to flee it. So, Lord, take these principles, I pray, and work them into our life and change our life because we were here today. And Father, if we need to make some changes in our lifestyle, give us the courage and the assistance by your Spirit to be able to do that. Lord, help us protect ourselves that we might finish the way Paul did. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.